Welcome everyone to another episode of Community Conversations hosted by the Peaceful World Foundation in Petaluma, California. Today, we are joined by Greta Severson from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to lead our conversation on the peace activism through the arts. Part two, Greta is an art teacher and has taught all grade levels from K to 12 throughout the past 20 years. And she is a returned AmeriCorps and Peace Corps volunteer. Welcome. In preparation for this event, Greta and I spent a great deal of time in discussion and conversation and reflecting on art and on the peace activism that can be found through the arts. And one thing we know for sure is that art is important. It's a healing tool of expression. It builds community, like hands-on experience, whether it's building a mural together or creating paper mache together. Coming together through art builds community. It is consistently changing and evolving and gives room for growth and expression. But with the defunding of the arts and the public school sectors and the increasing loss of the communal experience of making art leaves out community discussion and community outreach. So a question that came for us, is there a direct correlation with the loss of the arts and the state in which our nation is in? I think I'm going to play this quick video. It's about five minutes long about Guernica. And um, this is probably the best known modern work of art of all um, anti-war. And because now we're talking about the fact that the peace symbol really is a protest against war, that um, we can't have peace while we have war and disagreement. We need to be able to, as uh, many people have said now, it's, it's about finding the, a way to uh, be unified as a human race. So I wanna show this, um, and then I have an interesting point to make um, a more uh, contemporary context to this painting that I wanna share. On April the 26th, 1937, fascist forces bombed the Basque village of Guernica in Northern Spain. With one of the worst civilian casualties of the Spanish Civil War, waged between the Democratic Republic General Franco's fascist contingent. For Pablo Picasso, the tragedy sparked a frenzied period of work in which he produced a massive anti-war mural aptly titled Guernica. The painting is a powerful work of historical documentation and political protest. But while Picasso's artistic motivations are clear, the symbolism of the painting can be as confusing and chaotic as war itself. How can we make sense of this overwhelming image? And what exactly makes it a masterpiece of anti-war art? The painting's monumental canvas is disorienting from the start, 
rendered in the abstracted Cubist style Picasso pioneered. Cubism deliberately emphasized the two-dimensionality of the canvas by flattening the objects being painted. This afforded viewers multiple and often impossible perspectives on the same object, a technique considered shocking even in Picasso's domestic scenes. But in this context, the style offers a profoundly overwhelming view of violence, destruction, and casualties. Multiple perspectives only compound the horror on display, sending the eyes hurtling around the frame in a futile hunt for peace. On the far left, holding her dead child, releases a scream. Sliding down his bending back unnaturally. There is a statue of a soldier present below, but he is unable to defend the woman and child. Instead, his broken body is a piece, an arm clutching a splintered sword. The tip of his sword meets a woman's foot as she attempts to flee the devastation. Her other arm is rooted to the spot, locked in the even as she stretches to move it. Another victim appears behind the slouching figure, falling helplessly as flames lick around her. She too is caught in her own hopeless scene. Each of these figures bordering the painting are horribly trapped, giving the work an acute sense of claustrophobia. And where you might expect the canvas's massive size to counteract this feeling, its scale only highlights the nearly life-sized atrocities on display. Some possible relief comes from a lamp held tightly by a ghostly woman reaching out the window. Is her lantern's hopeful glow truly lighting the scene, or is it the jagged light bulb thought to represent the technologies of modern which illuminates her view of the chaos below? Often like confines of her window, her arm takes the viewer back into the fray to perhaps the most controversial symbols of all. Two ghostly animals caught in the destruction. Does the screaming horse embody the threat of Franco's military nationalism, or does the spike running through its body convey its victim? Does the white bull represent Spain, the country of matadors, and a common theme in Picasso's work, or does it stand for the brutality of war? In this scene of strife, these animals raise more questions than answers and additional elements hidden throughout the frame offer even more secrets for close observers. At the top of the canvas flashes a bird desperate to escape the carnage. And the abundance of animals on display may hint at the bombing's date, a market day which flooded the streets with villagers, animals, and other potential casualties. Like the bombing of Guernica itself, Picasso's painting is dense with destruction. Hidden beneath this supposed chaos are carefully crafted scenes and symbols carrying out the painting's multifaceted attack on fascism. Decades after its creation, Guernica retains its power to shock viewers and ignite debate and is often referenced at anti-war gatherings around the world. Hundreds of viewers have grappled with its harsh imagery, shattering symbolism and complex political messaging. But even without a close understanding of his complicated subtext, Picasso's work remains a searing reminder of the true casualties of violence.
interested in learning more about art history? Okay, so um, just very quickly, the uh, painting by Guernica by Pablo Picasso um, depicts what happened um, when Spanish uh, forces dropped bombs on a civilian town. And actually it was German and Italian forces that they allowed to bomb uh, civilians. And uh, it's believed that the reason that they bombed this town was because it was actually a weapons, a town where they had weapons manufacture. And this town was supplying um, Spanish who were standing against the fascist regime, regime of Franco. And so he allowed his allies, the German and Italian forces to come in and drop bombs on the town. And they believe that there were about 10,000 people in the marketplace that day. And that's why you see all you know the animals, the, um, the symbol of the bull to represent Spain, and you see all the figures here. There are differing accounts on how many people died from 1700. Art historians say maybe 300, 400, um, but at different countries have different accounts. Um, but it, it again stands as a, a moment in history where an artist has taken a stand against acts of violence against people and a call for peace um, and for an end. And I think that you know there's always this interwoven politics with these ideas and you know this battle against the ideas of fascism and idea for democracy and freedom of expression, freedom of rights. So this painting, um, was hung at the United Nations. First, it was first viewed um, at um, a World Fair in France. And then later, after Franco was out of power, it was allowed to return back to Spain. And then somewhere at some point, it had made its way to the United Nations. In 2003, Colin Powell was giving a speech in support of entering uh, Iraq to, for the start of the Iraq war. And I don't know if it was his decision or if it was people around him, but this painting was covered so that he could give his address without having this great anti-war um, painting hanging behind him. So when he gave his speech, he was at the United Nations and this painting was covered in a blue tapestry um, to hide it. So it's you know an interesting modern context that art can be so powerful and have such a strong impact on how we think and feel that they felt it necessary to hide this work of art to advocate for war. So um, I think that in talking about the place of the peace symbol, the place of these paintings like Goya and um, Guernica, the idea is that art itself really can help to transform and engage society. And when we're trying to um, have a movement, having something that we can all come together and see and share and understand without maybe the context of words even. You can see the peace symbol in any country around the world. We can see Guernica um, and I don't speak Spanish um, and yet I can understand what this painting is about. So I think that's the value um, of art is that it can transcend cultures and the meaning um, can be universal. Does anyone want to share an impression or something you felt came up for you while you were watching the video? I can share the, um, that's actually the first time I saw the Picasso uh, painting and just, you know, witnessing that painting, it's so evocative. It gives such a visceral feeling of 
uh, overwhelm and fear and it re really just captures my emotions um, so um, yeah I was really struck by the imagery there and i uh, really grateful for how it was presented Greta thank you yeah yeah I I often um I, you know, every time I look at it or I look at any of these things and I talk about them, you know, I'm, I'm still almost moved to tears that, you know, we um, aren't farther ahead that I would, you know, where I would like to be that, um, you know, just what was it a week ago, um, the United States, Australia, um, more discussions about, you know, adding nuclear missiles, um, you know, there's war throughout the world, um, you know, it's, uh, it's difficult sometimes to really slow down and look at it. And artwork like that um, really shows the truth. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Greta. So last thing I'll highlight before we take a quick break here is that um, there is a contemporary artist, his name is Shepard Ferry. I'm not sure if anybody um, knows who he is or is familiar. You may be familiar with his artwork um, for uh, the change campaign for Barack Obama. And there were um, images of Barack, kind of red, white, and blue. Um, Shepard Ferry is the artist that did those. And so he's bringing forward the idea of peace, make art, not war um, into contemporary uh, times again. Hopefully this will show up. And so you can see here um, the peace symbol included, eyes open, mind open, um, rise above, and um, the theme that art really can transcend. And I decided to highlight one of my um, favorite artists, Faith Ringgold. Um, so it excites me to have an opportunity actually to talk about her. I um, reference her in school all the time. Um, I may or may not have mentioned, but I know we posted in the very beginning, but I teach art and I have taught kindergarten through high school. I'm currently seventh grade through 12th grade right now, um, but at all ages, um, I have always used her as an artist um, for discussion and for inspiration, because I think she is such an important um, American artist. So I'm happy to um, talk about her today. So just before we get to Faith Ringgold, I wanna set up um, just a little bit of what was happening um, during this time period. And there are so many great websites out there. This one is from history.com uh, that I'm referencing very quickly, but these are some of the major things that were happening um, throughout uh, the 50s, 60s. So you have the civil rights movement and this website, I'm not gonna spend much time on, I'm just gonna use it to quickly scroll through. So we've come out of uh, World War II, um, we're entering into the Cold War. We have Rosa Parks, um, who in 1955 um, decided to um, hold her seat on the um, Montgomery bus in Alabama. You have the Little Rock Nine in 1954. You have um, Brown versus the Board of Education. So there are so many um, major things happening here in the United States. You have the Civil Rights Act of 1957. Um, you have the Freedom Riders in 1961. So if you are interested in looking at the history, 
um, history.com, this puts things together for this time period in a really um, very concise, clear way. And um, it's a great resource to have. So just getting the, you know, the image that um, there was a lot of uh, not only action happening in our government, move for civil rights changes um, politically, on the streets, grassroots, um, there were people who were um, pushing back and demanding um, better, demanding equality at this time. So um, as the Cold War began, Harry Truman um, was president. We have in 1948, um, an executive order to end discrimination in the military. Um, so these were all major things. And the civil rights movement itself encompasses a time period from roughly 1954 to 1968. Okay, well, I will um, go ahead then and um, close us out with a little bit of history of Faith Ringgold. And um, as I said before, I I'm excited to share uh, her work because I think that she is just as important today as an artist, as an advocate, um, as uh, someone who is trying to um, create a culture of peace through her art um, as she was when she started in the 1960s. And um, she has you know, a very interesting uh, history. She was born in 1930 and um, she was born in Harlem, which was the, um, the scene of the Harlem Renaissance. So as a young girl growing up, she was used to having people in her neighborhood, famous people, um, Duke Ellington, Josephine Baker, you know, that were parts of community gatherings and conversations. So as a young girl, she was already being influenced by, um, you know, some of the greatest minds. Her mother was a fashion designer and doing well at it, you know, making a career at it. She was known. So um, she already had this really strong creative influence around her as a very young girl. She had very terrible asthma. So um, she was actually homeschooled and um, given then really the opportunity to be as creative as she would like because her mother was teaching her to sew how to use fabrics in creative ways, um, how to manipulate her ideas through art. So it was this very enriching childhood. Um, and so there's this video that I'm not going to share. It's about five minutes long, but I do want to highlight it because you may of American want art. to go back and watch it for yourself on YouTube. From the 1930s. And it was, um, it's by CBS Morning. They produce a lot of really great, nice, succinct um, videos about artists. But to really get a picture of who she is, um, there's clips of her speaking. She's such a dynamic person. I'm just going to try to highlight a moment just so you can see her on camera um, and get a sense for who she is. Why are these girls so happy? Why not? Why but not? in fact, Ringgold's work spans over 70 years, an observation of decades of social upheaval in America. When people said one thing, you would say, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Yes, because uh, that's necessary. If you wanna do something, you cannot just go by what other people want. A consummate. So that actually um, took me back when um, Ms. Fernandez was talking, because um, when she first applied to City College, she was told by her family, you're going to go to college. You know, this is just something. And, you know, what I tell my kids, like, you're going to go to college, you're going to go to school and, and do something. Um, so she decided she was going to go to the City College of New York. And at that time, it actually was an all boys school. 
And she was one of the first female students um, to attend as an undergraduate. And that was about, I think, 1950, 1951. And she actually wanted to be a fine art major, but was told, no, um, there are certain degrees that women can have. That's not one of them. So she was put on a path for art education and which she, she did and she majored in art, kind of you know, found a way to marry the two and graduated with a, a degree to be an art teacher. And then she did work in the um, New York City public schools for many years, um, also then uh, became a professor. And um, so she found a way to marry her, um, her love of teaching um, but also pursue her own art um, in her personal time. So in the 1960s, she meets her second husband. Um, her first husband, um, unfortunately, they were married for about four years. Um, he was a musician um, and developed a heroin addiction, which uh, later led to his death. So she had two children from her first marriage, um, which I, I believe worked with her um, all through her adult life uh, in her foundation and her advocacy. Um, so she had two children from that first marriage and she marries um, her second husband with the last name Ringgold. That's when she starts to use his last name in the 60s as she's producing um, one of her best known series, the American People series. So um, her website, just to uh, highlight that as well, is um, a beautiful way to kind of look through the decades as she is developing it as an artist. So her earliest works, the American People series, she is painting um, her life experience. She's painting people around her. And one of the things she says is even most taboo is that as um, a black woman, she was told she should not be painting white people. That there was you know, a class distinction, a hierarchy difference that um, that was one thing that already she was doing that was taboo. And as she stated in that video, she was never one to um, shy away from those challenges that when someone told her not to, she pushed back and did more of it. And that's one of the things that I love about her um, is that you know these were challenging times, not just for women in art that they weren't really represented, but as an African-American woman, there was a whole nother layer and during the civil rights move, movement as to um, the work that she was producing. And she uses his, her art as a way to um, push back against um, the rules. And um, so here you were talking about Angela Davis. She even um, produces works um, for Free Angela when Angela was um, jailed. And so she uses her art to speak to um, what was happening in the political context, in the social context of America. And she's starting to, in this early period, introduce words, which she becomes famous for this marriage of text and art um, as an artist. So she's addressing uh, what she sees in her life. And she's heavily influenced by a lot of different things. She's pulling in um, designs from African culture um, you can see this X. I find it in her art from her earliest periods to her later works that she's creating, that this almost like um, designs that are pulled from fabrics and tapestries in African culture, she draws inspiration from. She was um, a big fan of Pablo Picasso's work. And you can see clearly when you see them juxtaposed next to one another, the color palette, some of the shapes in her earlier work. 
um, really uh, influencing her ideas at that time as she's beginning to figure out who she is as an artist and what story she wants to tell. And um, a very important work uh, that she revisits again later is from her um, American People series. And this one is The Flag is Bleeding. So she is very directly confronting um, racial injustice, the violence in America, and um, she's using it to push back again on social norms. When she, uh, it was the 1970s, she and two other artists decided to put together uh, an art show and it was called the, um, the Flag Show, the People's Flag Show. This was the poster that she created for that, um, that gallery showing. And the representation was that everybody would use the flag as the foundation for their artwork. And um, at that time, she and the two others that created this were arrested for um, their works using the flag. And she intentionally um, wanted them to use the flag because she said that a flag that we cannot use as artists cannot question um, is not a flag that really um, represents democracy, that we need to have true freedom to use it as we um, want to express our ideas. And um, so they were arrested and um, ended up in the end having to pay a fine. It was either a choice of 30 days of jail time or a fine of $100 each. And I think it was the NAACP that helped to represent the, the three of them, um, the Judson three in court over this argument. But what you can see is it definitely has led to um, a broadening of what art can be and how it can be used. She revisits that again in 1997 in The Flag is Bleeding too. So um, this you know, does show that we can use art to push against norms and make progress. So there is progress being made. And um, even though she was you know, constantly um, hitting stumbling blocks and roadblocks, she kept pushing. And here you have her again, revisiting that same conversation that uh, the flag by all Americans should be an, a symbol that we can use to have a debate and a discussion about what it really means. And that's why I think one of the underlying things that I think is most valuable about her work is it is just important as important today to the conversations we're having about our social context as it was in the 1960s, as it was when she revisited it in the flag um, show in the 1970s, and then in the 1990s again, we're still having this conversation. And that's what a healthy democracy should be, is that um, to get to a better place, we have to be allowed to have these conversations. And she is one of the people that is the reason why we're allowed to have these conversations. She's the one taking the risk and making the statements and fighting for representation in galleries. Um, she organized a group to stand against the Whitney Museum when they were excluding um, not only African-American artists, but excluding women artists. So she's done protests and led those protests. This is a work of art um, from 1967 called um, the American Postage Stamp. And within the context is representation. You can see that by and large, it's white faces peering back at us, a small number of African-American faces um, represented. And then you can see the context of that X again, threading through. 
and she's using the faces as well as the term black power. But when you flip it on your side, you can see within the context of this conversation that she's using the lines within here, it says white power. So she's asking us to question this hierarchy, this dominance by threading in the conversation. And um, you know, a lot of people she said wouldn't show her works. These earlier works were threatening to people. So, you know, they, it was hard for her to even get uh, these works seen. And I just saw, saw today that um, coming up in 2022, the new museum in New York is going to do a retrospective of all these works, these early 1960s works of Faith Ringgold's, and um, do a show to highlight the importance and significance of these early pieces. So just to kind of um, touch again on how important this work by Guernica has been to many people, including Faith Ringgold, this um, work she cites as being something that was a catalyst to a change in her work in her color palette. Um, you can see the black and whites here and the kind of black and white with hints of color. It, she was told that she didn't know how to do movement by a few uh, a gallery owner after that, those 1960s pieces. And she was like, you don't tell me, I don't know how to do movement, I'll show you. And so she produced the American People series number 20, which shows movement um, and shows the horrors again of um, the civil rights movement. And you can see here what I think, you know, we all know to be true is that huddled together are these children that uh, these ideas, they evolve because we teach those ideas. And the children themselves uh, have come together. They're seeking one another out for protection. They're holding each other um, amongst all of this that's happening around us. And uh, that again, being a teacher, um, I see it as an opportunity to, um, to speak to children about, um, the relevance. I, you know, I don't obviously show this painting to kindergartners, but I can show them um, paintings by faith and talk about the same ideas that um, we come together and use to express our ideas um, to show love in different ways. And so the context of it is the same, even though I may not be highlighting the same works, that um, she is a woman who has stood up to adversity for her entire career and has used her art and her words, her text threaded in to create award-winning books, um, as well as her own style of art, which you see here in her latter years, she moves into bringing together that sewing tradition that um, was passed down from her grandmother um, and from her mother. And her mother actually helps her to sew her first quilt um, as she does, she paints on fabric and then sews and handwrites words in to tell the stories. She's always been a storyteller. So um, here in the end, you can see that um, she's using these to thread together her ideas of peace and love, um, as well as her questions uh, for the future of what do we want and how can we all be represented um, in the future um, in this country that we hope uh, will be a thriving democracy that represents everybody equally um, in the future. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Greta. Can you show that? Can you bring up that picture, the first one with uh, her? With the face? Yep. Uh, you know, it's the next, um, the black and white one. 
to your left. To my left, this. Oh yeah, of her standing. Yeah, I I just love that that one. Yeah. Um, one of the things that Greta, just to wrap up here, is one of the things that Greta and I talked about while we were preparing for this was, um, you know, I never saw art like this, and I want I oftentimes wonder, you know, would it have had an impact on me as a, you know as a young person or anyone of my peer group. Uh, because growing up, we we were what we were seeing um, art in a different way. Whether it was landscape, I very rarely ever saw uh, artwork like this, and it really posed this question for me: is um, how art pushes forward um, an idea, and in this case, you know, uh, this question on diversity, this question of you can do it, this question of um, having dignity in one's in one's career in one's profession um so having reviewed these things with Greta the the question that came up for us was um as a, you know as us in a group if we can share a bit is you know as we as we see that art is important as a way of expression it's constantly changing evolving just like we saw and heard from Greta about um the peace symbol and peace activism through the arts we know that in this country, they're defunding the arts. So is there a correlation with uh, the loss of the arts, the loss of the communal experience related to arts? And is there, is there a correlation with that and where we are as a nation? I think it's lost. I think, um, you know, I wanted to ask you too, Greta, that was a question I wanted to ask you. Since you're teaching and I know you know, young people nowadays, they, they're so computer oriented and they can move this line and make this picture. I mean, how, how is art helping them develop? I, I actually think um, it's more important than ever now because um, they don't, a lot of kids don't take that time. It takes time to make something. Right. It's a slow process and everything is so fast now. Everything happens so quickly that it forces them to slow down and, you know, take that time and, and learn what time it takes when they see something that, wow, that might've taken that person, you know, months to make or even years to build. And that that's, that's reality, that everything seems on the surface, like it's moving so fast. But there still is a, a part that we have to accept that is slow and, and should be deliberate and take time to craft and uh, care for. So I think uh, it's definitely very important on that end. And I think it's important um, on the other end is that I feel like I get the opportunity to expose them to these conversations where I think we've lost that um, with standardized testing that I felt it change gradually over time that there's been this shift from kids having um, time to experiment or conversations in the classroom that used to just, you could just take a turn and have a conversation. But now because everybody's on these strict timelines, oh, I have to get this criteria in by this date, they, you know, those conversations don't happen so much anymore. There isn't allowance for that kind of education to happen. So I feel like I'm the like the place where I can still slow us down, let it evolve, let a conversation take half the class for you know that period because it just felt necessary where other subjects really don't have that luxury anymore. 
And I feel like they, they want you to tell them how to do something because on a test, there's an answer, you know, I must learn this and then I must respond it back this way to get X, Y, Z to happen. And I feel like um, they, I get to push back on that a little bit by saying, I don't know, I'm not going to tell you, what do you think mm -hmm. you should do with this? Um, so I, you know, I'm always concerned when I see, you know, cuts to the national endowments for the arts and in my own school district where I've, you know, I mean, my job has been cut and changed, um, really every year for the past 10 years. And I'm always concerned, you know, are we going to lose another position or, you know, are we going to have, um, are they just going to keep cutting classes and opportunities because they don't want to pay for staffing or right. materials? Um, I, I have been feeling that for a long time. So, um, you know, it is a concern for me and I just take every day as, you know, a great opportunity um, to hopefully have a small impact um, on that end. You have a big impact. Don't say small. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Greta. The Peaceful World Foundation was founded by the late Sami Sunchild in 2006 and has since awarded over half a million dollars to local San Francisco and Bay Area nonprofit organizations. Our mission is to promote peace by supporting and encouraging nonprofit organizations in their peace building efforts within the field of the arts and mindful education. Thank you for listening. To learn more about our community building work or to attend our conversations live, visit us at peacefulworldfoundation.org.